So we're going to talk about this passage this morning under uh, three headings. As we work our way, we're talking about the promises of God. And so I've titled the sermon, Promises, Promises. And the first thing I want you to see as we think about these promises is their enduring content. Their enduring content. So here's the situation. We skipped over chapter 14. Let me just give you a little background, because you you really need to understand 14 as we move into 15, because that sets the stage. And so in chapter 14, what you read about is a situation in which uh, there are some kings, and they get together, and they go down against the city of Sodom, and uh, they end up picking up... uh, they, they pillage the city and they take a bunch of their stuff and, and, um, they end up carrying away Lot and his folks. Now you'll remember from a week ago that Lot looked up and saw the Jordan plain and how green and beautiful and lush it was. And you remember he went and he pitched his tent there. Okay. And one of the things you'll recall is that when Lot pitched his tent, we noted that he did it Where? Next to the city of Sodom. Do you all recall that? He did it next to the city of Sodom. Well, what you find out as you uh, read through chapter 14 is that um, not, not that Lot was living next to Sodom, but that he was living in Sodom. So gradually, over time, Lot had moved his family outside of the city limits into the city of Sodom. And so when King Ketterlamer came down with the other kings with him, Lot got swept up in all of the commotion and they carried him away. Well, Abram heard about it. And Abram put together 318 of the fiercest fighting men he could. And they went down against King Ketterlamer and the, the other kings, and they won. They routed him. And they got Lot back, and they got uh, a lot of the loot back. And so they, they went back, and, um, and we pick up in chapter 15. And the sense that you get in, at the beginning of 15, because of the words that are spoken here, are that perhaps there's a little bit of a letdown for Abraham. He had defeated this king, the other kings that were aligned with him. He had rescued Lot, but now he's back. You know, perhaps he's a little low after all of that hoopla in chapter 14. The battle's over. His men had been mighty in battle. They had triumphed over uh, their enemies. Perhaps in the stillness of the moment, as Abraham's reflecting on this, he starts thinking to himself, hmm, What if King Ketterlamer goes out and unites a few more kings with him and they get their act together and they come against me again? Then what will happen? Perhaps things won't go so well the second time around. Whatever it was, when the Lord comes to Abram in a vision at the beginning of 15, these are his words. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now that's the beginning of several promises that take place here. And, and you don't think about it right at the beginning, but tied up in that, right? Abram comes, or God comes to Abram, and he challenges him, and he says, listen, don't be afraid. 
Why? Two reasons why. Because I'll be your shield and I will be your great reward. Now what's God saying to Abram? He's saying, listen, I, I am for you, Abram. I, I will protect you. I will watch over you. I will keep you. It's a very strong admonition to him to not be afraid. Now here's the interesting thing. Abram had already experienced both of those promises. Think about it. So God's not merely reminding Abram that he is going. He's not merely telling him that he's going. He's reminding him that he will be his shield and his very great reward. Because think about it. Abram and 318 warriors went against King Ketterlamer and the four other kings that he had allied with, and he was victorious? Of course God was his shield. Of course God was already with him when he went into battle. And here's the interesting part. Because God says, I will be your great reward. You go back and you look at the end of chapter 14, and what happens is the king of Sodom comes out, and he he essentially offers uh, Abram, look, you get half of the loot, and I'll take the other half of the loot, and, and you get it because you were so faithful, and you went and you fought for us, so take half of this stuff. And what does Abram say? Abram says, I won't take a thread from your sandal." And not only that, but just prior to that, Melchizedek had come and Abram had offered a tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek. What is Abram saying? He's saying, the Lord is my very great reward. He said, I don't need your stuff. I don't want any of that. I don't want any of that loot. I don't need any of that stuff. I have the Lord. And not only do I have the Lord, I'm giving, I'm going to give to the Lord. And he gives a tenth of everything he has. And so Abram had already experienced it. But in the midst of this, somehow the fear is welling up in him. And so God comes to him and reminds him, Abram, don't forget. I'm your shield and I am your very great reward. And then the next thing. The next thing is he begins to move into these other promises. And, and, you know, Abram has a, right there at the beginning, at verse 2, he says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? There are doubts in Abram's mind and heart. But he knows that God is his shield and his very great reward. Listen, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in a positive, right? In Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's an understanding that the Lord is your very great reward. Jesus puts it negatively this way when he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Right? That's a way to put it negatively. What is it, what would it gain Abram if he gained all of that loot and yet lost the Lord? And so Abram's thinking is right at this point. Now remember, there are multiple times, there are times when, when Abraham's not getting it, 
We've already seen one of those instances when he went down to Egypt. And then there are times when he gets it. And right now, he has his mind on right. He's thinking with the eyes of his heart. He's living by faith. And things are well. And this relationship with the Lord that he has is well. Listen, many men and women have had the world but they had only a restless soul. And many have not had anything, and yet they've been as happy as kings. Are you holding on to the Lord? Is He your great reward? Abram asks, who will possess my estate? When Abram asks that, he's not... When he asks the Lord in that very next little section in verse 2, Who will possess my estate? I don't have an heir. He's not just talking about his physical estate. Abram, he is asking the Lord, who is going to possess what you have given me? My knowledge of you. Who is going to possess? Who will be the heir to all that you are blessing? Not just this physical stuff. All that you are blessing me with is very important for him. Not only just as a man in that era, but it was important to him because the Lord was promising him that he would be the father of a great nation. And so he's just asking the question, how is that going to happen? And so God answers him and tells him that, there is a, he will give him a son who will be of your own flesh and he will be your heir. It's an astonishing promise because he has nothing. He's old already. And then God gives him a little bit more to the promise. All the way through, a little bit more. He adds a little bit more to the, to the promise. Abraham doesn't understand exactly how it could be. So he takes him out and he tells him to look into the night sky. Now think about it. Abraham's thinking to himself, I don't have a, I don't have a son. How do this be? And God says, I'm going to give you a, a son. And then he takes him outside and he tells him to look into the night sky. Remember, he's already used one illustration with Abram. Do you remember it in chapter 13? The dust of the earth. Now he takes him out and says, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Wow. Is that comforting to Abraham? Maybe a little, but maybe not so much. Because he's thinking to himself, one son, you're going to give me the stars? That many descendants? That's how it's a most amazing promise. Here's the equally amazing part. Are you ready for this? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not only part of the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. Think about it. God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? You are a part of that fulfillment for Abraham. And so God has used you and is using you to fulfill his promise made in Genesis 15 to Abram. Remember the first Sunday when we started Abram? We sang the song. He is your father in the faith. You are a son or a daughter of Abraham. And here's the next part. Not only you are a part, a part, because he's not done yet. So not only are you a part of the fulfillment to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15, but you are a part of the ongoing fulfillment of that promise as you take the message of the gospel to the world around you, to your children and your grandchildren and your spouses and to your neighbors. You are a part of fulfilling the promise made to Abram in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever thought of yourself as a part of the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abram? You're the dust of the earth. You're the sand on the seashore. You're the stars in the heavens above. You, 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 all of us together. It's amazing. And that's where, and this is where the story of God's people begins to take shape. Listen, when we talk about church, unfortunately, somewhere along the way, I don't know where it happened, we really messed up using that word. Because when we say church, when people say church, they think building. We say, I'm going to church. You're not going to church. You're going to worship. You are the church. Okay? You're going to worship on Sunday mornings, not to, not to church. You're going to worship. You are the church. You are the ecclesia of God. That's the Greek word. In the Old Testament, the word is kahal. They're, they're the same idea because what they represent are the, the called out ones. And so God has called you out of the world and he's joined you together. That's when we say in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, we say those words, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Some of you don't say that, do you? Because you think you're talking about the Catholic Church, when what we're talking about is Catholicity, as in unified, together church. The the church in all ages, at all times, okay, this big, giant, universal glob of what? People. See, you're the church, and God began building you when he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was the first church member, if you want to put it that way. And then he began to build his people, and you are a part of those people. That's why you can sing the song, Father Abraham. And so here he is, building this church. Listen, Jesus came to die not for a series of individuals. Jesus came to die for his people, the what? Church. That's why Jesus says, I will build you, your little individual life in your house, and so you can go sit in a deer stand and worship God. No. He said, 
I am going to build you as the people of God, and I'm going to build you together, the church. And that's what God is doing. And that's, that's why what we do here is special, because God's pulling us together in a way that He does not do when you go to Sonic or McDonald's and, you know, yes, is He there with you? Of course. But when we gather together here, something very special and unique happens. Go read Hebrews, um, chapter 12. We don't have time to do it right now. We're the bride of Christ. We are the church, and Christ died for us. Here's the second point. Okay, promises, promises. I want you to notice their faith-producing quality. These promises given are the Word of God. You remember the old commercial when E.F. Hutton speaks? Hey? When God speaks, people listen. In Genesis and 15.6, It's one of the most critical verses in all the Bible because it tells us that Abraham heard God's word and he believed it, he trusted it, and that that faith was credited to him as righteousness. Before he had ever done anything, before he had ever progressed in this journey, before he had started walking, the walk, if you want to put it that way, he trusted God, and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. See how important that is? A lot of people believe, like, well, the Old Testament's, you know, that's the law, and to be saved in the Old Testament, you had to obey the Ten Commandments. No. The Ten Commandments came after. Okay? Go read... In, in Exodus 20, and what you'll read right there at the beginning is God talks about, right, Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2, God talks about everything He's done for them, and then He says, and this is how I want you to live and be and do and act. And so, here in Genesis 15:6, we read that, that God spoke this promise to Abram, and He believed it, and God credited that to Him as righteousness. And the Apostle Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 4 and he says, listen, this faith that I'm talking about that is, that is alone and it is by grace and is salvation for you, it all began with Abraham because he trusted God and trusted his word and it was credited to him as righteousness. And where does it come from? It comes from God's Word. See, God's Word produced that in Him. He heard it. God spoke His Word to Abraham, and alive in his heart was what? Faith. Remember Romans 10.17? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Okay? See, God's Word is what generates this faith. And it's powerful. Abraham heard it and he didn't need anything else. And even that faith, even the faith that God gave him is a gift. So that no man can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So here's the Last point I want you to see, and this is really the most important part 
of this pet. It's all really good stuff, but this is amazing stuff. And I want you to see this last point that promises, promises their monumental ratification. I know, really big word. I couldn't come up with anything really simple and nice and tidy. So their monumental ratification. Let's look at it. So here's Abram, and this is where you really, okay, if you want to identify with him a little bit, if you, okay, you're like, you can't span the generations very easily. This is a great spot to span the generations because what does Abraham do? So he believes God, he trusts God. What does it take? It takes a childlike faith. And so he expresses a childlike faith, and then immediately right after that, what does he ask God? Take a look at it. Verse 8, Sovereign Lord, how can I name? Well, you have verse 7. Verse 7, God says to him, I'm the Lord. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And then Abram says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll take possession of it? Yeah, he's a man. He's a person. Just like you, just like me, he struggled. He he had doubts. He wanted to know, okay, come on, give me something. Just your word. I need a little bit more. I need I need you to somehow make this very real for me. How can I know that I'll take possession of it? It, it would be nice. If I had an anchor, give me something that roots me here. Something to hold firm. Something that keeps me from being tossed around. Something that helps my faith stay steady. And so God goes into action. And what does he do? Well, he does exactly what you and I would do. He tells Abram to grab a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram takes them, and he, with the exception of the birds, he cuts them in half, and he lays them, and he makes a, he makes an aisle. And you're going, okay, what is he doing? He, he's meeting Abram, and he is going to give him exactly what he is asking for. He is going to steady his faith. You see, when you and I enter into an agreement, we get a lawyer. Two lawyers. Ah, oh, let's get three or four. We get a couple of lawyers, and they draw up some documents. And then we all go and we sit down in a room, very nice and orderly. And they sign them, and we sign them a million times. And then somebody puts a seal on it, they stamp it. And then all the witnesses have signed it and everything. And then we take those documents and we put them into a lockbox somewhere. And we hope we never have to pull them out. Because if we do, nobody's going to believe them and it will be a big court fight anyways. (laughs) But that's how we make deals. That's how we make agreements. That's how we arrange things. We do it very orderly like that. Well, they didn't do that. And so what they would often do... In, in very formal agreements, and typically this would be reserved for something like a, a king and a vassal 
king, right? A, a big, strong king and a weaker king, or um, sometimes it, it, it could be two prominent parties. But what they would do is they would do something like this, where they would arrange the carcass of an animal. And then the parties would pass through that animal. And what they were saying was, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, then let what has happened to this animal happen to me. You with me? And so that was was kind of a very gruesome thing, but essentially that showed the solemnity of the promise that they were making. It was the ancient pinky promise. They were promising to stick a needle in their eye if they didn't do what they said they were going to do. And so God comes and he tells Abraham to gather all of the animals and to arrange them this way. And so he does it. And then and then he falls into a, a deep sleep. And as he's in this deep sleep and, and as he's in this slumberous state, God comes and meets with him. And here's what happens. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Now, the content of 13 down through 16 is what's coming. It's not a pretty picture. And the gloom that falls on Abram is almost like the gloom that is going to fall on this very young nation Israel. And they're going to go through some very difficult and bad times for 400 years. They're going to be strangers in a strange country. And of course, we know what happens as they go down in the Exodus and they're uh, down in Egypt and Moses is raised up and leads them out. We know all of that. And so there it is. But then verse 17, the sun had set and the darkness had fallen. And and this little phrase, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch is not at all easy to translate, really. It's a, a, a bright blazing blazing is kind of the way it's easy, most, right? And, and what, is, what is this? Well, it, it, it's probably something akin to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt. That's probably something similar to what it is that Abram sees and, and witnesses as God comes and meets with him. But the important part really shows through in verse 18 where we read this. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give all this land. And then that, that blazing blaze appeared and went between the pieces. And he announced his covenant with Abraham. It's a fascinating scene. And when he does that, here's what he's saying to Abram. He's saying, listen, Abram, I am going to make this promise to you. That I will keep my word. That I am making this covenant with you, Abram. With you. It gives him this beautiful picture of it. And, and it's as if God's saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, then let me be undone. 
Let me be undone. Now think about that. I mean, what God is saying in that statement. Abram, I'm going to pass through these pieces, and if I don't keep my end of this covenant bargain, and let this happen to me, let me be undone. But there's more. Is listen, Abram has a problem. Here's his problem. Abram, he might at this point know and believe that God will do what he says he will. But you know who Abram, Abram doubts just as much as he doubts God at this point? Himself. He's already failed God once. He's already abandoned the promised land and the promise and gone down to Egypt. Why wouldn't he do it again? And so no doubt in the midst of all this, part of his problem is he trusts, he struggles to trust God, but deep down because of his own past experience, he struggles to trust himself because he knows himself already. And isn't that a need that we all have? Let me ask you a question. When Jesus and Peter were having their discussion about forgiveness in Matthew 18, Peter says, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister? And up to seven times? And Jesus responds to him and says, no, 77 times. Let me ask you a question. How could Jesus tell Peter that limitless forgiveness is what's required if he himself was not ready to give the same limitless forgiveness to Peter and to you and to me. And so we see it right here, don't we? God went through the pieces alone for he and for Abram. And for Abram, God was torn in two. For Abram, God did allow that to happen to him. He was torn up for him. He did become a sacrifice for Abram. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me, and I'm going to read it. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 26. Romans twenty Romans three twenty four twenty five. This is what he says in twenty four uh, or twenty five. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He's talking about Jesus. And he did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. See, there is Abram, deep sleep. God goes through. He goes through those pieces alone. If Abram goes through it, 
when Abraham sins in these coming chapters, then he is the one who is responsible and liable and will be cut down because of the covenant promise. But God goes through and says, Abram, I will take what is yours in your failure. And Paul tells us that he left the sins, he left those sins remain unpunished until the time of Jesus. Until Jesus would take the sin upon himself upon the cross. Past, present, future. And he paid for the sins of all of those ancient saints way back yonder who were in the midst of that sacrificial system. Jesus took it all on himself. And so God was the one who was just, right? And he is the one who justifies. Isn't that an amazing story? An amazing picture that God gave our ancient father, Abraham. And you know what? It's the same story that is good news for us, isn't it? That he has borne the weight, the penalty of our sin upon himself. Exactly the way he promised to do. In this gospel picture in Genesis chapter 15. The promises of God are sure and true. And you and I have them and we can trust them. Not because we're great keepers of promises, but because he is. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your word to us this day. Thank you for your goodness and for the good news that comes to us right out of the word We've just read. Father, how good you were to Father Abraham and how good you've been down through the generations to your people to give to us the good news, the gospel. We thank you for forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the new life we have in Christ. Father, may it overwhelm us this very day as we go into our week. In Christ's name, amen.